I think our church is the best snacks and coffee of any church that I've ever been to. Grab your Bibles. We're going to pick up in Numbers 28. While you're turning there, I'll ask the Lord for more grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we are desperate to understand your word. It's hard to understand your word, especially when the lights are going on and off. But thank you now that they're on, that we can uh, read our Bibles and study your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look at this God-inspired word that uh, even tonight, the, the feasts, the Old Testament Jewish holy days, how you encoded in them the mysteries of your plan, the mysteries of the universe encoded in seven holidays that tell the whole story. Help us to, to get it tonight and to be blessed and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. The Hebrews have been homeless for some 400 years at this point in Numbers. You remember that 70 of them had been in Canaan some 400 years earlier. Remember Abraham, the first real Jew. Isaac, Jacob had 12 sons. And from this group came 70 people, all Hebrews. And they left for Egypt for temporary relief of a famine, only it turned into a 400-year excursus there. Uh, Now, two million strong, and after a 400-year incubation process, they're in the slave pits of Egypt. The nation is on their way back, and they've got to wrestle it away from the Canaanites because God had given that land to them, the Canaanites, pagans, who had rebelled against God for these 400 years. Now, they are on the brink of possessing that land, here in Numbers 27 and 28 and 29. They are perched on the hills, overlooking. All that separates them from occupying is really the Canaanites uh, and the River Jordan. Once they cross the river, they're into the promised land. And they're right there. And in here, Numbers 27, to catch you up, we've been talking about inheritance, how the land will be divided once they cross the Jordan, according to the 12 ancestral tribes, right? In Numbers 28 now, where we find ourselves, there's been talk about the routine of worship. Once you cross into the land... How will you walk with me? How will you worship? How Israel will walk with and fellowship with the God who has brought them out of Egypt is the subject, really, of Numbers 28 and 29, where we find ourselves tonight. So that being our focus, really, it's Israel's liturgy. And liturgy just means protocols for worship. Israel is going to be told by the Lord that this is to be your liturgy. Uh, in other words, our liturgy here in the New Testament would be uh, the reading of Scripture, meaning how do you do a worship service? What elements are involved? That's a liturgy. In other words, reading of Scripture, reading of the psalm, 
singing and praising God, uh, giving of your tithes and offerings, preaching and teaching the word, um, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are our, this is our liturgy. Well, in Numbers 28 and 29, the Lord is going to give a liturgy. This is how you are to conduct corporate worship services for you Jews to come into my presence. Really, the word worship can be defined so simply. Uh, one of the, the leading theologians who wrote 40 books on worship had one little phrase saying, worship really is a meeting between God and his people. And so in 28 here, chapter 28, uh, the Lord outlines how that worship is to take place. Now, of course, in Exodus and Leviticus, we've seen hints and uh, total instruction on how to come before the Lord through the construction of that worship center called the tabernacle, the materials, the colors, the process, everything about it spoke about liturgy. This is how you are to come before me. And even the high priest, how he was ordained, his clothes, uh, the practices, the furnishings in the worship center, was all telling a story. One, who is God, his character, his holiness, his mercy? Who is man, his sinfulness, his weakness, his helpless estrangement between us and him, God? And what will it take to bring the two together? And that is called atonement, which is a word, an English word, that got coined for its meaning, at one meant, with God. So worship really kind of encoded here in the Old Testament in these um, liturgies. These are the, the way that you are to corporate worship. Uh, do co- corporate worship is really all about how to become one with the Lord, how to sit at the same table and break bread with him. So chapter 28, last time, the story begins with daily offerings, verses 1 through 8. If you look down there and just scan with your eye, it was starting with daily offerings. And uh, we mentioned last time we spoke that a relationship with the living God can't be relegated to time and place. That the first story here is saying daily offerings at the temple, burnt offerings in the morning and the evening, is that corporate worship must spring from your own private, individual worship. When I bring up the Lord to people in the world, and they immediately go to the word church, uh, it, it, it isn't really understand why they're doing that, but it really isn't a biblical understanding of worship. It's from our hearts that we ourselves have encountered God and we love God and walk with God every day, morning, noon, and night. The burnt offering that goes off in the morning and the evening in the daily offering is a picture of you. Only you are living offering. Romans 12.1, let us offer ourselves as that burnt offering. But we are living. So, so the daily offering spoke to us of this living daily relationship, which, which is the foundation for all other corporate worship. The second one, verses 9 and 10, was that they were to have a weekly worship service on the Sabbath day. And uh, they, um, we talked about how Jesus is, this speaks of worship brings us rest in our souls The Lord said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Partner with me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. Life with me is easy, and my burden is light. And so the, the Sabbath day offerings and liturgy would speak to that quenching of our thirst, that we were created for God, and he quenches that thirst. And then lastly, verses 11 through 15, the new moon um, worship liturgy was to remind them that the newness that God brings to our lives when, we, when we're with him, every day is new and he's making all things new. The key fulfillment verse there would be 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Um, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so these worship services daily, weekly, and monthly were telling the story. These are aspects of what's important in redemption and coming to God and meeting with him. Now we are going to look at the annual reminders. We've already been daily, weekly, and monthly, and now he's going to to list five of the seven um, holidays, the word holy day. I mean, that's exactly what a holiday comes from, is the word holy day. And there are seven high holy days. Uh, There's only five listed here because two of them are hidden in Passover because they're in three consecutive days, Passover and uh, unleavened bread and first fruits, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So those two often just get called Passover, and and that means unleavened bread and first fruits. But we're going to talk about them all tonight, so we'll get kind of straight with them. All right, so how they're listed here in your text from uh, chapter 28, starting at verse 16 tonight. Passover, 16 to 25, the Feast of Weeks, it's called, from 26 to 31. And then next chapter, the Feast of Trumpets, and then uh, from 1 through 6, and then 7 to 11, Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents, uh, from 12 to 40. And we're going to, here's the plan. These verses focus on just the offerings for these five holidays. It's a little bit tedious, and it doesn't really explain what the the feast days were about. Here's what I want to do. It reads very straightforward. Please read them. It's the word of God. But for a public gathering, what I, I think is more beneficial to do is teach on the meaning of the five feasts. These are just the offerings listed. They're just recipes given. I want you to bring two goats, three bulls, this much flour, this much oil. That's all, that, all, all you're going to be reading. So what I want to do is what Warren Wiersbe did. Before I read him, he said, you know what? We're just going to look at, instead of going through this, we're just going to look at what they mean. I already worked and did it, and then I checked him at the end, and I saw that he did that. And it was like, nobody's going to believe me. That I, I came up with that on my own. But uh, anyway, so that's the tack we're going to take. We're going to look at them in the order. And I, I threw in a, a few slides just to break it up a little bit. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one. Here's what, what I want you to get. Encoded in the seven Jewish holidays 
is God's prophetic plan for his divine intervention in the world. You will get the mystery of the first coming, the first four spring feasts are all fulfilled to the day of Jesus' death and resurrection, to the day, the giving of the Holy Spirit, to the day. All four of the first spring feasts are done. There are three feasts that remain, and they are in the fall. They will be fulfilled in the second coming. But it's just fascinating to see not only is the prophetic, but every possible shade of meaning of what it means to be bought by the master, by his blood, to be walking with him in holy living, to be saved. Every shade and nuance can be found in germ seed thought in these. This is a story about you if you're going to heaven and a story of you if you're not because it's the way to get to heaven. And so it's more than just, oh, these are customs that the ancient Hebrews practiced. No. You don't want to talk about Da Vinci Code or Bible Code cracking? Crack these codes, and you're going to come up with uh, real inspiration, I believe. All right? So with that, let's take a quick look at the first feast, which um, you're in luck because it's Passover. And it's the most familiar of all seven of the feasts, right? So let's take a look at that. Here's the first slide. Passover. Now, all of these feasts are listed in Leviticus 23. And you can uh, take a look at that in your leisure. Now, worship, what is Passover saying? Passover really is saying that worship is made possible by the bloodshed, the innocent blood of another in your place, that you are set free because of somebody else's death on your behalf. Now, Exodus 12 is the very first time you see the Passover because it's the pinnacle, it's the kingpin of the plagues. It's plague number 10, as most of you know. This is nothing terribly new. It was a terrible night, but... Plague number 10 is, and the Passover, is the straw that broke Pharaoh's back. Here, let me read a little bit of this from Exodus 11. About midnight, says the Lord, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of cattle as well. He's serious. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. There will be peace. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And what was the distinction? One thing. Only one. Not their behavior. The thing that saves them is it's not them. That saves him. What's the distinction? What keeps the firstborn Jew alive? The blood of the lamb. And Passover is just the happiest Jewish holiday of them all. Happy for who? Not the lamb. Because the lamb has to die so that they can be set free. Death comes at midnight and passes over because he says, I will see 
the blood, and I will pass over, and you will not be destroyed. Um, And so, you know, Exodus 12, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, and there, of course, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be offered a sponge of vinegar on the stalk of a hyssop plant. So we see that even there. Take hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some blood on the top and both sides of your door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides, and he will pass over. Now, of course, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming over the knoll there and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, It's impossible for the blood of lambs or bulls or goats to take away human sins. It had to be the God-man, the Savior, the Messiah. At On Passover, Jesus says, I'm the lamb. The cup of wine, you know, it's my blood. The bread, this is me, my body. And we're going to see all of that in the Seder dinner next Tuesday night. Uh, Jesus' blood now is placed figuratively on the house of the temple. We house the spirit. We, this is our house, right? And the blood is applied there, and Jesus passes over. Now, hidden in Passover are two holy days not mentioned, and I want to mention them so that you're apprised of this. Unleavened bread and first fruits. Let's t- now, Passover is Friday, right? Jesus dies on Passover. Unleavened bread is Saturday, and first fruits is Sunday. All right. They all mean something. So now let's go to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would happen on Saturday while Jesus is buried. All right? Well, Jesus is alive, but his body is buried. Unleavened Bread, the next slide. And so, you know, it's the whole communion meal. But Unleavened Bread, Jesus, the self-proclaimed bread of heaven... He is born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. That's what that means, and I've said that many times. And he's laid in a feeding trough, the sinless offering, the bread of heaven, the one without sin. Now, the reason there, there's no leaven and it is because leaven and yeast is a symbol of sin and evil, the rotting, the fermenting, the corruption of that, And he says, you're to rid yourselves on this day of all leaven in your house, and you're not to eat it for a week, which means the sinlessness of Jesus. Now, they take in a Jewish Seder dinner, they take the middle matzah of three, as most of you know, and they break that, and they wrap it up in a handkerchief, and they bury it, and then they go and resurrect it in the Seder dinner. Jesus was buried technically on a Saturday because the evening starts the new day. So on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus, the true unleavened bread, is buried and fulfills that feast as well. And then so he dies on Passover. He's buried on unleavened bread. And do you know that Easter is really first fruits? 
First fruits falls on Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday. And so I, I believe there's a slide for that. That's okay. We're having technical difficulties. Oh, thank you. All right, first fruits. This is important. First fruits, no, there's, a, there's fruit before that. Yeah, that's okay. First fruits was really cool. It happened on Resurrection Sunday, and here's what the idea was originally. The first fruit to ripe, ripen was brought in to the temple and waved before the Lord as a thank offering to say, this is evidence of what's coming behind it. This is evidence that all the crops will come in behind it. This is the first fruits, all right? Jesus is called, and on Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, it is the feast of first fruits. Not the next day or the day before, but that Sunday morning, they're all talking first fruits. And what is happening is that Jesus raises, he is the first fruit from the dead, guaranteeing all who trust in him who are God's people will in the same way be gathered up and raised up, not in death, but in life. So the, the feast of first fruits is really saying uh, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, let me read it to you. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have died in the faith. For since by man came de- one man came death, by one man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So now the next slide. This is the whole point. This is the fulfillment of first fruits. It's that Jesus is alive. He says, now I am the first fruits. All who trust in me, follow me, and will be raised in the very same way. Even the Bible says that you share a body. You will look, you will have a body, rather, that uh, is very much like his, his resurrected body. So Jesus is the first fruits. Now, 50 days from first fruits, from Resurrection Sunday, 50 days is a feast called the Feast of uh, Weeks or the Feast of, Te- of Pentecost, all right? So there's a Greek name, Pentecost, from 50, where we get Pente, all right? And Feast of Weeks is the Jewish name because there were seven weeks, all right? So from Easter Sunday, don't, 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 don't drift off. I, I know... It's all going to make sense. It's just it's got to connect the dots. Stay with me, okay? Because we're getting to the rapture and the second coming, all right? So 50 days is the Feast of, of Pentecost, all right? So the Old Testament context, they're on Mount Sinai. The law comes down. You can move to the next one if it's only if it's the right one. All right, a little cheesy, but it's the best I could do for that slide. Mount Sinai. Did you know that the giving of the law, that whole deal, happened on their feast of Pentecost? 
When they have the Feast of Pentecost, I know all you can think of is Holy Spirit when you hear Pentecost, but the Feast of Pentecost fell 50 days after the first Passover. They arrived 50 days after the first Passover there in, uh, after the 10 plagues. 50 days from the 10th plague, they end up on Mount Sinai and the law comes down. 3,000 of them die. Now, the Jews remember the giving of the law every feast of Pentecost. What happens on the day of the feast of Pentecost? Not the giving of the law that condemns you, where 3,000 die because they're worshiping the golden calf. 3,000 are saved on the day of the feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. It's the birth of the church officially. And 3,000 people are harvested in instead of 3,000 people condemned. And now you see four feasts all fulfilled, not near the day, on the exact day. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Four feasts down. Check, 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 check. Now, why don't you put up the very last slide? No, there's a very last, there's a chart there. That's okay. That's my fault. I should have gone over it better with them. Check, 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 check. Now, where are we? Spring holidays are done. They're all fulfilled. We're in the summer. From the, from the Feast of Pentecost, now there's summer workers in the harvest. The trumpet blows to tell the worker in the harvest, the harvest is done, game over. And so now we are in the summer. The church age is officially called... Uh, the summer in between spring and the fall. And it's a long summer. It's been 2,000 years of summer. But fall is coming. And when the second coming comes, then the fall feasts are starting to be fulfilled. So let's take a look at the first fall holy day. It would be the Feast of Trumpets. It's the most exciting one for the church. It's referenced there, chapter 29, verses 1 through 6. Rosh Hashanah. And so now you can go and find the shofar being blown. There you go. All right. The Feast of Trumpets, or called Rosh Hashanah, is, as I said, the first fall day. Now listen. The trumpet was a signal to the harvesters. Come on in, as I mentioned. And the New Testament fulfillment is the harvesters stop their working The season's over. The wheat is collected into the barns at the sound of a trumpet. And here's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. No one knows the day or hour, said Jesus, Matthew 24, 36. But the feast of Rosh Hashanah is a two-day feast. It's on a new moon, which it means a cycle of 29.5 days. It's on two days. And actually, the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is 10 days, and they're all high holy days. Who knows, really, when the Lord would exactly come? Yes, we're not to be overly concerned about fixing a day, but the Bible gives us signs to look for. It is not wrong to say we are looking at the best that we can to determine the season for his return, or why would he say, here's a whole list in Matthew 24 of signs. And he says, know this, when you see the little buds coming, you know summer's near. And when you see these signs, Now, there's a difference between knowing, hey, it's probably going to be in the fall. Every evangelical, nearly every evangelical Bible scholar and commentator and theologian has this set up that the Lord comes according to the fall feast. This is Bible 101. You don't go to Bible college without hearing that teaching. That is a teaching that's been around for hundreds of years, and uh, it makes quite a bit of sense. People say, well, we're not, well, we don't know the day or the hour. Who's telling you the day or the hour? We're not like that madman who's posted signs all over the world, May 21st, the judgment day of God. And he said, I heard him on the radio say, if May 21st comes and I'm still here, then I'm not saved. Well, guess what? I could have told you that before May 21st. (laughs) You're not supposed to do stuff like that. He says, don't. Nobody knows the day. He says, Jesus said, not even I. I leave that to the Father. But Harold Camping knows. All right. All right. So next slide. Yom Kippur. Ten days following Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur, the day of covering. And you remember what it's all about. One day a year, the high priest would take blood and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where God would meet. And the Ark of the Covenant is a chest for the box that held the Ten Commandments, which we broke, which we all break. So he puts blood on top of the Ten Commandments, and God says, you're good for a year. You're good for a year, you see. But it's fulfilled in Christ for us. But how about speaking as he would speak to the nation of Israel? You're all free. You're all forgiven. That is unfulfilled. But on the day that Jesus Christ appears, the Bible prophesies that all of Israel, not every last Hebrew, but the nation as a whole, will turn to him in faith and become a Christian nation. At the second coming, Zechariah prophesied that Zechariah 12.10, they shall see him and they will grieve for him, even they who pierced him. 
They will mourn. They will repent. Zechariah 13.1. They will be forgiven by the Lord. And then Romans 11.26. The entire nation of Israel shall be saved. On the day Christ appears, Israel will be proclaimed forgiven. And the day of atonement will be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as they take their rightful lead role as lead nation in the kingdom that he has come to set up. That is the day of atonement. Five days after the day of atonement is the last feast, feast number seven. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, that's the second coming. The Feast of Tabernacles is probably the lion and the lamb. The Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate the 40 years in the wilderness when they wandered, and God dwelt with them in a tent. They had tents. The Lord had his tent. Where they went, he went. Where he went, they went. He was dwelling with them. And once a year, for seven days, they have a camp out. They still do this to remember and tell the stories about all the stories from, from Numbers and Exodus about how God was faithful and what kind of miracles he did for the Jewish people during those 40 years. Now, how is that fulfilled? Well, to go ahead and turn with me as we close up for the night. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling, and that word is tabernacle, the same word. Dwelling, tent, living with. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles will be the millennial reign of Christ. When the lion lays down with the lamb, there is no more war. The curse is reversed. The earth is returned to the paradise that it was intended to be. But it's just the dwelling of God, that he is with us and that we are in his presence. You know, there's a curious phrase that his name would be, is going to be on our foreheads, which is an idiom, and I've mentioned this before, that just means his name is front and center. He, his na- name is focused. It's a, he's the, the core of our lives in the millennial kingdom. He's dwelling with us. And just uh, as Christ dwelt, the living word became flesh, and the same word tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling among us. And so this, the seven feasts, there they are. First coming, the death, the burial, 
the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church on the feast days. The coming of the Lord for his people, the trumpet, the day of atonement, the return, the literal, physical return of the King of kings and Lord of lords, where all of Israel will be saved, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the millennial rule of Christ, when animals will be peaceful, not to mention the, the human <laughs> animals. They will also be peaceful, for they will be changed. Those who survive the Great Tribulation that inherit the millennial kingdom that will be changed and they will live extended periods of time, almost like back in the days of Genesis when they lived up to a thousand years before the flood. So we're kind of going backwards, only better. So here's the list of review here. The seven holy days tell a story. One, of a sinless savior who shed blood could save people from eternal death. Two, The story is told here that the Savior, though he dies as a sacrifice for sin, he rises again, defeating death as a proof that those who belong to God will follow him in life. Three, the Savior would then send his life-giving spirit to make his paid-for people alive, born again, living and breathing relationship with God. Four, the Savior would come suddenly from heaven for his people to gather together in a place prepared for them. Five, the Savior would one day win Israel's heart and allegiance once and for all at his appearance. And six, that his save, this Savior would usher in an eternal kingdom where righteousness, love, joy, and peace would rule the day because God himself is dwelling with man and man dwelling with God. Seven holy days, one beautiful story. I hope that you're a part of that story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that sets us free, the, the, the shadow of these holidays fulfilled in Christ, as Colossians 2 tells us, that the significance of all of those holy days are met in Christ and what he's done for us. So thank you, Father, for the truth that touches our hearts and and excites us to live for you for the days are coming when we shall see you face to face according to your great promises, even here in the Jewish feasts. We thank you, Lord. Help us to be ready. Help us to be productive for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Very exciting. Just seems like summer's coming to a rapid end. Fall's about to begin. Never in the history of the world. The Arab world's all about erupting. The whole world is on fire. Never in the history of the world could everybody look and all see the whole, what's happening in the whole world. We can all see. Be ready. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when the master returns and finds you doing his business. 
blessed are you. I really want to be found doing his business. Either way, time's short. You don't have that many years left. No offense. Either way, time's short. Be busy. This is what we're all about. This is what, what it all comes down to, the day when we're going to see him. So, Father, we know that we can't do anything apart from your help. So please help us, Lord. We're so prone to wander. Leave the God we love. We're just so silly and so weak and frail and dumb. And I just pray, Father, that you just quicken us and let us see with eyes that see the world on fire and surrounding Israel and threatening Israel and Israel in the land and all these prophecies fulfilled and just help us to make a difference in somebody's life tonight, to tell people that we love them and, and, and to be in the scriptures and to pray and to give and, and to just do our best to please God as we see the day approaching. We thank you. Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.